The recording that you're about to listen to is a talk from the City Bible Forum. We would appreciate you respecting our copyright by not making copies of this talk or altering the content in any way. We hope that you find the material beneficial. If you would like more information on the City Bible Forum, you can visit us on the web at citybibleforum.org. G'day everyone. We're continuing in our series in the book of Ruth in the Old Testament, Seeking Asylum, Finding Refuge in God. So last week we saw the story of the refugees, Naomi's family, and uh, she brought back a refugee from Moab, Ruth, and we continue that story today. Today's talk is, Where Do You Find Refuge in Crisis?, the first word that came to my mind today when Mark told me the title was The Bottle. It's not me personally, but some people find refuge in the bottle. I hope that's not you. So it'll be interesting to see in today's story where the people find their refuge. So as I read the chapter a little bit later, you might be looking for that. Our speaker is Mark Leong. Mark has been with the City Bible Forum since the beginning of the year. Uh, He works with the young workers, the new graduates, and he also helps to, he, uh, helps to integrate people who are interested in finding out more about Christianity. The format of today's meeting is that Mark will get up and speak for about 20, 25 minutes, and then it'll be a chance for you to ask questions or comments. You can either do that by texting a question, by writing a question on the little slip of paper inside the program, or just by sticking up your hand and I've got a roving mic. Right, right. Well, just before Mark gets up, I'm going to read the section of the Bible that Mark's going to be referring to today. It's Ruth, chapter 2. It's a great story from the Old Testament part of the Bible. Ruth 2. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi... Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favour. Naomi said to her, Go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of the harvesters, who does this young woman belong to? The overseer replied, she's the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I've told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whether you are thirsty, go and drink, get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this she bowed down with her face to the ground and she asked him, Why have I found such favour in your eyes that you notice me? A foreigner. Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you've done for your mother in law since the death of your husband, 
how you left your father and mother in your homeland and came to live with the people that you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favour in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she'd gathered and it amounted to about an ephah. She carried it back to town and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead, she added. That man is our close relative. He's one of our guardian redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabite said, He even said to me, Stay with my workers until they've finished harvesting all the grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him, because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvest were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Well, it's great to be here, and isn't it fantastic that the sun is shining? Uh, I don't know about you, Sydney's had some crazy weather over the past uh, couple of days, and other than just having crazy weather, uh, it's official now. I was reading, I I picked up the paper on uh, Tuesday, and this was the title which caught my eye. Aussies, taller, fitter, richer than ever. If I were to summarise the article, this is what it said. Australians are less prone to die from cancer, are richer, better educated and even taller than they've ever been, according to a new report into Australian living standards. Now, as you look at me, I don't know about you, but I definitely didn't help on the taller category there. I probably dragged down the average rather than boosted it up. But as you read that title, how does that make you feel? Maybe you have read it and you feel a bit patriotic. It's great to be an Australian. We live in a rich, a great, a lucky country. Maybe after you read the title, you feel thankful. I don't think the same report could have been written in Afghanistan, could it? But here's the question which I'd like to pose today. As you look at that title, Aussies are taller, fitter, richer than ever. Do you feel more secure knowing this? Do you feel more secure knowing that Aussies are taller, fitter, 
and richer than ever. Or to put it another way, do you feel safe? Do you find refuge in these statistics? If you're like me, I suspect the answer is no, because, yes, we are wealthier than ever before, but we all know that wealth can be taken away very quickly. Uh, You can lose your job from a restructure which you didn't see happening. It was announced and in a couple of months your job could be gone. The global financial crisis told us that retirement savings, our nest eggs, weren't as safe as we thought they were. Yes, we're fitter, we're less prone to cancer, but I'm sure we all know somebody who's gone to a doctor for their routine checkup, done a blood test and heard a diagnosis they've never expected to hear. Uh, These statistics, yes, they capture the past, and it's been a good past, but we all know that past performance doesn't secure future prospects. Just because we're wealthy today doesn't mean we're going to be wealthy tomorrow. Just because we're healthy today doesn't mean we're going to be healthy tomorrow. It seems very natural to find security in our wealth, in our health. I mean, that's why this article caught my eye. And I dare say that's why this article caught your eye as well. These are the criteria by which we assess a good life. And yet I don't mean to be a fear monger and I don't want to sound like a doomsday prophet, but I think it is fair to say if you put your trust in your credentials, if you find security in your achievements, if our nation is going to be defined by these statistics, then that's not a lasting place of security. It's not a safe place of refuge because it's temporary and it's fleeting, isn't it? Well, if that struck a chord with you, then we are left, uh, then you're just where we left off last week, last Thursday, when we started off this series in Ruth. Last week, as we looked at the first talk, I tried to help people see that we are all refugees. It's not whether you came by boat, though that's a particular type of refugee. You actually can be a refugee in a suit today because everybody is searching for a place of refuge. Everybody here is searching for a place of security. And in chapter 1, we heard of three people who sought refuge in three different places. In chapter 1, we were introduced to a guy, an ordinary guy called Elimelech. He found his security in Oh, he found his security in his economic status. But when that was taken away, where did he seek refuge? Well, ironically, he sought refuge back in a better economic deal. He went to a greener field. He went to a place called Moab. And that didn't seem to be wise. We saw Naomi. She had her family support. Her family security, that was taken away. And where did she seek refuge? Well, she didn't turn to God. She actually turned away from God in bitterness. And she only saw that God was against her. And finally, we met Ruth. She was the outsider. She didn't know nothing about God. But unexpectedly, when her economic security and her family security was taken away, she decided to put her trust to seek refuge in God. And so the refugee's question in chapter 1 is our question today. Where can security be found? When the credentials in our lives start to crumble away beneath our feet, is this God, the God 
who we hear about in these pages, is this God a place of refuge? And so we turn the page and we look at Ruth chapter 2. And as we turn the page and the story continues, it takes actually an unexpected turn because we're introduced to a new character and his name is Boaz. Let's look at the first verse of this chapter. It's on page 2 of your booklet. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Now, I don't know about you, but you may have noticed that Hollywood recently has been taking biblical stories and putting them to movies. So, early in the year, there was Noah, and in December, the Exodus story is going to be put to a movie starring Christian Bale. So... I was wondering, if Hollywood were to take the story of Ruth and put it to a movie, who would Boaz be casted as? As in, what type of actor do you think Boaz would be most like? So I thought about it. I'm not a director, so this is my uh, uh, directorial debut, so don't don't boo me when I suggest this character. But this is the guy who I came, came up with. Does anyone know who this guy is? Ben, do you know who it is? It's The Rock. That's right, that's his nickname. It's Dwayne The Rock Johnson. When I think of Boaz, I think of a guy who's strong. Indeed, the reason why I chose Dwayne The Rock Johnson is not because of his acting skills at all, but did you know that Boaz, his name actually means with strength. See, when you introduce this character, you're meeting, you're expecting a strong male figure, maybe an alpha male. And yet, funnily enough, uh, as my wife has been reading Ruth, I asked her, who would you cast as Boaz? And she suggested this person. Uh, the ladies laugh in the room. The men, if you, if you don't know who this guy is, please, please do yourself a service and get familiar with Mr. Thornton from North and South. And my wife said, you know what, Bowers is not the alpha male, he's not the rock, he's not the guy with, who, who, he's not the gym junkie, no. He's strong, but he's also sensitive. Did you notice how he treats Ruth in verse 8? He calls Ruth his daughter. Even though Ruth is a foreigner, we learn in verse 9 and 10 that, that, that Ruth realises that she's a foreigner, and yet Boaz welcomes her greets her as a daughter. Isn't this a great example of warming generosity? In verse 15, we find out that Boaz doesn't want to embarrass her. So she, he commands his harvesters to leave things for her to eat so she won't go empty-handed. See, so he is a strong, sensitive, and as we'll see later in Ruth, this guy's not just strong and sensitive, he actually has brains as well. He knows how to navigate a political minefield in chapters 3 and 4. Strong, sensitive, a guy with brains. I I have a little confession. I only watched a very little bit, half an hour of the TV show The Bachelor. It was enough for me. I didn't want to watch it ever again. But Boaz is by far a better bachelor than Blake. This guy is a great guy. And yet, as he's in- introduced in verse 1, I think he's a great guy in a whole different way. Because as you look at verse 1, Boaz, we find out, 
he lived in the same region and belonged to the same clan as Elimelech, the person we were introduced with chapter 1. So here Boaz, I think, is being contrasted with Elimelech. Do you remember, if you weren't here, Elimelech in chapter 1, he fled. He, he chased economic security and so abandoned God and his people and went to Moab. Life was difficult. He thought, no, God, I'm not going to keep God as my refuge. There's a better refuge. And he pursued that. But Boaz, he stuck with this God. Unlike Elimelech, Boaz stuck with God through the famine. He didn't move on, but counted God as reliable. Boaz thought God is worth sticking with, even through the tough times. And how did could Boaz be so confident of this? Was it just blindness on his part? Well, no. Boaz would have seen and heard a continuing pattern in the Old Testament. Uh, if we had, were reading Ruth in the Bible, you could read the pages before and the pages after because the pattern that comes up time and time again is that this pattern. God makes promises to his people and he fulfills those promises. God's make, God makes promises to his people and he fulfills them. So Boaz would have known that. He would have known God made promises to these two old people, Abraham and Sarah. They there was no chance of them having children and God made a promise, from you I'll form a nation. And a few generations later, Boaz would have seen God had fulfilled that promise. There were many, many children from these two old people. Boaz would have known that God made promises to the children of Abraham and Sarah, that they would no longer be nomads, but they would actually find a home, a permanent place to live. And Boaz would have seen that that promise has been fulfilled. He's now living in that permanent place. He's no longer a nomad. This God makes promises and he fulfills them. It's as if this God is super glued to his word. And so Boaz had confidence that even though his circumstances, there was famine, he was going to experience hardship. We think the famine lasts around about 10 years. That no, God's plans, they seem unfinished, but no, he's going to finish them. I have confidence to stick with this God. Even though the storm clouds gathered, Boaz was still convinced that God was good. Staying with this God was the greener pasture. Leaving for another refuge was actually settling for second best. Well, we've met Boaz, and after that brief introduction... The story picks up where it left off with chapter 1 and it continues with looking at Ruth. Uh, at the end of chapter 1, Ruth was with her mother-in-law and now she goes out, in verses 2 to 4, she goes out to glean uh, the leftover grain. The idea of gleaning is the harvesters would go through first and you know any grain that fell by the wayside, uh, then uh, Ruth would pick up after them. And in fact, this was not just by coincidence, but at this time, God's law had kind of this social security system built in place. Uh, it's mentioned in three places, but here's one example of this law. What does it say? This is God speaking to his people. How are they to conduct themselves? When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest, the leftover bits. Do not go over your vineyard a second time and pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord your God. 
Ruth takes a punch. She goes, I'm going to seek refuge in this God. And actually, this God always had eyes on the alien and the refugee. This God always intended to welcome the alien and the stranger by leaving food for them. Well, let's continue with Ruth and see how the story unfolds. Let's pick it up in verse 2. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favour. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Limelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. Did you notice in those verses how things kind of fall into place? As Ruth went out, she could have chosen many fields. It's not as if, you know, there was a field signposted, this is Boaz. And even if it was, Ruth didn't know that Boaz was somehow related to her. So she goes to this unknown field and just then when she's gleaning, Boaz happens to come and just then they happen to have a conversation. You see how everything kind of falls into place for Ruth? Is this just all coincidence? Is it just random chance? On one level, yes. Ruth and Naomi are genuinely surprised by what transpired. There's no planning on their part and yet in hindsight, both Ruth and Naomi and us as readers realised that God was at work. Uh, Ruth is a very unique book in the Old Testament because unlike the other narratives in the Old Testament, God is silent. God doesn't speak in this book. There's no prophet. There is no mouthpiece from God. And yet, we can't mistake God's silence as inactivity. God was working even though Ruth and Naomi didn't know it. Ruth and Boaz, they decide to put their refuge in God. So how, what type of refuge? Was this decision a good decision? Let's evaluate it now. As a refuge, this God is super glued to his word. His word is not like quicksand. It doesn't move or crumble, but it's able to be built upon. It's not like the stock market. It stands. As a refuge, this God is working when we can't see it and when we don't know it. And how does this make for a good refuge? Well, this is a cause for hope in every situation. See, no matter how bad it gets, and even though you and I might not be able to see how God is working, we can be rest assured that he is working. He hasn't abandoned me. He hasn't abandoned this world at all. Because you can't mistake silence for inactivity. Indeed, if I may push it a little bit further, isn't that what happened when Jesus died on the cross at, first, at that first Easter? No one saw that God was working there. If you and I were there, back around about 30 AD, none of us would have thought that this symbol of death 
this bloody execution full of injustices would be actually the way that God offers life, that it would be a symbol for God's love, it would be a word of hope. No one would have thought that this was the way that God was opening up to be a refuge to people who had run far away and who had rejected him. Well, at the end of chapter one, we were left hanging a bit. Ruth had made a risky decision to put her hope, her refuge in God. And here in chapters two, we see that this God hasn't disappointed her. What does Boaz say in verse 12? What he says in verse 12 seems to be coming true. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Ruth has sought refuge under the wings. What a, bri- what a lovely imagery. Under the wings of this God. And this God has provided shelter for her. Even providing when she didn't know it. At the end of chapter 2, there's an abundance of her food. Did you see how she had leftovers even? This is amazing. And yet, Ruth still remains a foreigner. She still remains a Moabite. To put it in today's terms, she's still on a temporary visa. She doesn't have citizenship. Israel is not her home. And in fact, it's hard to know, but I think the chapter ends with some ambiguity, with with an open note. Verse 23, what do we read? So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and the wheat harvest were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Well, she's still a refugee. The harvest is finished. Will this provision go on? See, does the God that Ruth seeks refuge in, does he offer something more than refuge? To find out and to answer that question, you have to come back next week when we look at chapter 3. But uh, I'm looking at my time's running out now, so let me finish... Uh, with a bit of a story. Um, uh, Over the week, I've been reading this book. Uh, It's called The Happiest Refugee, and it's written by Anne Doe. And he's a comedian. He's a a funny guy. I don't know if you've seen him on TV. Um, But this story uh, tracks how he started off uh, in Vietnam with his family, uh, how they were refugees and how they settled in Sydney. And it's quite a compelling story. Uh, and I'll, let me share it with you. So here, um, Anne's about two years old, and his, so the story is, I guess, the recollection of his parents, and it's the night when they decide that they're going to flee communist Vietnam in a boat. Uh, they've kind of had to um, uh, dodge the communist patrol boats which are guarding the waterways. They've, they've all taken different routes, and all the plans have come together, and they've finally made it to the boat. They have two motors on the boat, and they set out to the open ocean. Day one goes, there's nothing there. They're still chugging along. They have some maps, so they know where they're heading. Day two comes along, and as time passed by, they, they see in the horizon a speck. It looks like a boat. And everybody celebrates. Here is our rescue. They're excited. They have, you can imagine if you're on a refugee, boot, or a refugee boat in the ocean, all you see is ocean. When you see somebody coming towards you, that's it. 
They cling onto it, they watch, they start to head straight for this boat, the boat starts to come closer and closer. But as they see it coming closer, they realise that this is not a rescue boat, but it's actually a pirate ship. And so this pirate ship comes up closer. They can't outrun it. They don't have any weapons on their boat. They're refugees after all. Siders alongside their boat, jumps on their boat, takes their motor, asks them to strip down, takes everything they could have. They had actually had some gold, so when they went to the country they'd arrive, they'd be able to kind of exchange it for some local currency. They take everything and they leave them. They have this second motor, which was busted, and thankfully the first pirates, they didn't take it. And so Arne's father is able to fix it up, patch it up using a bit of shoe, and they start again. Hope's restored. They start chugging. They start heading towards it. And then they see another boat coming. Not quite sure what to expect on this one. They look with hope, and yet... As it comes closer, they realise it's another pirate ship. It comes up, they board the boat, and Arne's father says, we have nothing left. We've already been robbed. But no, they make them take off all their clothes, they take what little food and water they have left, they take their second busted engine, which would just been fixed, and they leave them in the ocean. They last, they think they have another day, really, before things get really drastic. And then they see a third ship. What do you think it would have been like? Well, this third ship turns out to be a German ship. It's not a pirate ship, it comes up close. And they're trying to communicate with uh, them. They speak Vietnamese, they speak German. And it's really difficult. And the first thing they throw over is an axe. They're not quite sure, why are you throwing an axe? What are you trying to say? And as they find out, the only reason why this German ship could pick them up was if their boat was sinking. And so Arne's father picks up the axe and starts hacking into their boat. And as they see the water comes, they jump on to the rescue boat and are rescued. I think today's talk, if I've hit the mark, It's asking you two things. Firstly, as I started off with, I think we naturally find our refuge in our health, our wealth, and maybe even our height. But is that the pirate ship or is that the rescue ship? Where have you placed refuge today? Is it a false hope or is it a real secure hope? And secondly... Perhaps you're here today and your boat is sinking. You're taking on water and you're looking for refuge. Uh, Ruth chapter 2 is an invitation to jump on board with this God. This God who is super glued to his word. This God who's working, even though we don't know it. And if you do decide to seek refuge in this God, you might find out later that he's actually been working in your life without you knowing it. Because that's the kind of God he is.
Thanks, Mark. I'll give you a minute or so to write down any questions that you might have on the slip of paper in your program, or you can text them to me on the number up there, or in a minute or so you can just stick up your hand and I'll bring the mic over. So, questions about finding refuge in God. Is God a safe place to find refuge compared to the sort of places that we find refuge in our lives in the world? What are your questions about that topic? I had three questions on Wednesday. I don't know if there's a competition between Wednesday and Thursday lunches. I'm sure we can get three, (laughs) at least. We've got three staff here. We'll we'll (laughs) ask questions and give us some money later. All right. Uh, Okay. The gentleman over here. It's dangerous when you're in In the story you told at the end... Yes. um, ..and you've suggested... You know, it's a bit of a metaphor for us. Hmm. Um, is there any connection with the axe? Are we meant to do anything with the axe? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. How, how far do you want to read into my little met- metaphor story parable? Um, yeah, I, I was thinking... Um, <laughs> I think it's very hard in life to find refuge in two places at the same time. I think that's kind of an implication of, of being a refugee. You kind of cast your lot in one place. Uh, that's the nature of being a, re- uh, being a refugee. You kind of don't go to Australia and, uh, and go to another place. You kind of, you're fully invested because that's the place you, you need to go. And I think uh, if I were to kind of read a little bit more, because the story does um, uh, can be read in that way, and really I think part of the Bible story is... Um, when you're seeking refuge in God, it's so good that you actually don't need to seek refuge in these other things. In actual fact, you may have the liberty to grab an axe and get rid of those things. You don't have to be tied to your health. You don't have to be tied to how much you earn. You're kind of liberated from that. And there's a lovely freedom, uh, I think, involved because you've found refuge in this good place which gives you security. That doesn't mean you you don't appreciate and are thankful for these things. Uh, As I start off, I think it's right to be thankful for that Australia is a richer, wealthier, healthier, fitter place. Uh, That's a good and right response. But to somehow seek security in them, that doesn't seem right. And yeah, maybe part of it might be taking an axe and realising this is a false hope. In actual fact, this is a far better place to be. It's a bold decision, and maybe you're not convinced yet. If you are, fantastic. But if you're not, come back next week, because I think the God in whom Ruth seeks refuge and, uh, I guess, Christians seek refuge, the God of the Bible, the God that Ruth knows, has actually fantastically something more to offer than just provision. And I think that's how good this refuge is. There's a comment here, Mark, uh, that... The story assumes that the world is a dangerous place for women. Comment noted. <laughs> um, no, um, yeah, uh, I think that, that that's something which comes out in Chapter 2, uh, particularly, is, is that um, Ruth is very vulnerable, uh, and uh, that's in part, I think, um, part because she's a foreigner. Uh, that, that, that's what it means to be a refugee, really. 
is you don't have any rights. You're at the mercy of other, the kindness of other people. Um, and yet the society which she worked in uh, and the God who kind of ordered that society was actually keen to take care of them. That's one point I pulled out of it. Um, and secondly, I guess it helps you realise how great Boaz is in his kindness to her. Um, yeah, I think they're the only two comments I could make on that. I don't think it's, you know, that, yeah, I don't think that's ideal. I don't think that's the way it ought to be. But it is kind of good that the God of this society was keen to look after the alien, whether male or female, mm. in that sense. Okay. Any other questions out there? I can just bring the microphone over and you can ask a question or make a comment. Anybody else like to ask one? I've got I've got one more. Thanks, Craig. Um, I'm I'm financially secure and pretty healthy. Mm. I don't feel like I need to find refuge in God at the moment. Please comment. Yeah. Uh, my colleague Al um, ha- has this saying. Uh, you know, if you're very successful in a million dollars, have a great car, have a great uh, you know, a family. Uh, what, why would you? You don't see these people rocking up to church and asking for God, do you? Uh, it's because they've implicitly, and using kind of the analogy we're working with, it's because they've found refuge in all these other things and it's been really successful. Uh, I think that's a generalisation. Uh, I don't know many millionaires, but the people who I've met who are successful... Ironically, they have the same questions that the people who are unsuccessful ask, which is, I've made it, so what? I've made it, but there has to be more to life than all these achievements. Uh, which is, it's funny because I guess at City Bible Forum we get to meet with uh, some people who have been very successful and I get to work with graduates. And what I'm finding is that often they both, both ends of the spectrum have the same questions. Um, and so even if you have your, uh, your wealthy uh, and your healthy, be thankful to God, that's, that's great. But is that going to be the case forever? Are you sure of that? Um, yeah, that would be one maybe question to ponder. Uh, and maybe there's, I think there are bigger questions with, which need answering, even when you're healthy and wealthy. Sure. All right, well, before you go, can you, can you tell us about next week's talk? Yeah, What's next, that looking like? next week's talk, uh, if you look at the back of your outline, it's titled uh, In Search of a Home is God's, uh, is Refuge Enough? And so I kind of have anticipated that in this talk. I think chapter three uh, takes us beyond a refugee, which... You know, if you're following along, that's what I think we're like, a refugee finding refuge. Uh, this God actually offers something more. And I think that's... What is that something more? How does it look like? Uh, you need to come back and look at what happens with Ruth and Boaz and how that kind of is a little movie preview of what God is like to us. Mm-hmm. All right, thanks, Mark. All right. All right, well, just before we head back to work, uh, two things I'd like to tell you about that are happening next week. So the first is the Forum Welcome Lunch, just over in St Andrew's House, across there on Level 1, Tuesday lunchtime. 
We're going to be getting together for a free lunch. We're going to be getting to know Ian Powell, the guy over there in the brown jacket, hearing a bit, bit about his faith story, his spiritual journey, meeting some city workers and just hearing a little bit about the background thinking behind why we put on this lunchtime meeting and about the City Bible Forum. So if you haven't been to a welcome lunch before, you're very welcome to come. Could you please register? There's a, an A5 sheet in your program with a registration link or you could just contact the office. We'd love to have you there. And so the second thing is happening next week is we're starting a new five-week course called the Short Course for the Curious. And it's basically in a small group with someone who knows the Bible pretty well, um, um, Al Stewart, he's another of the regular speakers here, reading through the Gospel of Luke and looking at the teaching and the life of Jesus and seeing the relevance of that to our life today. So if you've never checked out the basics of the Christian faith, never looked at Jesus closely in one of the original documents, sign up for that short course or maybe you know someone from work who might be interested in it. We'd love to have them along as well. They get a free dinner out of it as well. Thanks for coming today. Enjoy the beautiful afternoon. The recording that you have just listened to is from the City Bible Forum. For more information about City Bible Forum events in your city or to order other talks, please visit citybibleforum.org.